So, you guys have already this morning um, recited our mission statement. I won't have you do it again, but you know it, right? I mean, if, if, if you're not familiar with our mission statement, that's when John stood up and started out with equipping, and then we say, and mobilizing the saints to impact the ends of the earth until the end of time with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I pray that that never gets old to us. I pray that that never gets just wrote to us. But why? Why would we have a mission statement? What's, what's the point? To remind us why we're here. To keep us focused. And when we, when we, to help decide what we should be doing, how we should be doing it, why we should be doing it. That's the one statement that defines who we are, what we do, and why we do it. And I think it's essential, and, and I'm not talking about like having a business model and, and knowing that we're going to, we match up to Procter & Gamble so that we can succeed. We'll get to that later. But, but you have to have that one clarion call that directs everything that you do, or what was it Aaron Tippin saying? You've got to stand for something or you'll fall for anything, right? There's a lot of good programs out there. There's a lot of good ways to do different things. But we're going to determine what we do, why we do it, how we do it, based on that mission statement. And that mission statement, hopefully you see, is informed by the Scriptures. And hopefully we know that those Scriptures are directly from God so that God is telling us what He wants, when He wants it, how He wants it. So we form that statement around that. Now... We've been talking about Nehemiah, where he's been, what he's been doing, why he's been doing it, how he's been doing it. And today, we're going to see this wall get finished. But not before we see some other things, some other uh, opposition. And we're going to see Nehemiah come back to the reason why he's doing what he's doing He's going to talk about how he does it. He's going to talk about what he's doing. And it comes back to one thing. He's got one goal in mind. And we're going to see that this week. And it reminds us, why are we doing what we're doing? How do we do what we do? What are we doing? To bring us back to this center point, to bring us back to this place where we know and we're all on the same page. Collectively and then individually we can find that one thing, that one purpose, that one overarching point of everything that we're doing so that we can live by that. So, if you would, stand with us. We're going to read Nehemiah 6, verses 1 through 19, which is the whole chapter. I probably should have made this two messages, but I didn't. So, And as we begin, I would remind you again that these are the very words of God, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit of God so that we can know who God is from His very own lips. That's why we stand out of reverence for this. So, Nehemiah 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates... Sanballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. 
And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat for the fifth time sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. And it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you've also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now, when I went into the house of Shimeiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehetabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the door of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin, and so that they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So the wall was finished on the 25th day in the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Moreover, in those days the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him, and Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Let me pray. Speak, O Lord. Be heard. Convict, change, cleanse. Do the work that you need to do, God. And may we agree with you and put our hands to the work that you are doing in our lives. It is up to you to give us understanding. It is up to you to teach us and to convict us. So we ask you to do it for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I heard somebody got married yesterday, right? Across the pond, they had this big to-do thing, right? Did, did Ann get invited to the wedding? I don't think that. Matthew, did he get invited? You got to be impotent to go to the royal wedding, right? Important, that's what I mean. If they'd invited me, I wouldn't have went because I had a lazy day planned. So, yeah, royals. Glad that Jesus and Mary got married and had those kids or something. That's foolishness, y'all. Invitations. Anyway. Let's start in verses 1 and 2 of Nehemiah 6. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together 
at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono, but they intended to do me harm. Demoralization. What we see here is a classic case of demoralization. But what we've seen over the past weeks are repeated efforts by Sanballat and Tobiah and their buddies to demoralize the Jews in building the walls. But now we have a bit of a turnabout, and now that the ones trying to demoralize find themselves demoralized. How do you react when your best efforts are rebuffed and the best you do does not succeed? Because that's exactly where the enemies of the Jews are right now. The enemies of the Jews heard that there was no breach in the wall. It was just missing the doors and the gates. And it upset them. It demoralized them, to say the least. So, after having tried to embarrass, intimidate, terrorize, and shut down the Jews and seeing that none of it worked, Sanballat and his buddies try one more thing. Let's go after the leader. Let's target Nehemiah specifically. So... Sanballat and Geshem send an invitation. They send uh, this, this invitation to this RSVP type event, like what we saw yesterday, right? So that they can, quote, meet together. They said, come and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. So just so you know, Ono is about 25 or 30 miles northwest of Jerusalem, more west than north which would mean that Nehemiah would have to be gone from the work. He'd have to be gone from Jerusalem for at least three or four days, taking into account travel time, meeting time, travel back time. Okay? So it would probably be safe to say that Nehemiah wouldn't entertain that thought because there was so much to do. But what if we could put an end to all this meddling? I mean, maybe it might be worth it to sit down and meet with these guys, right? Maybe. What if I could talk some sense into them, Nehemiah might have thought, and reason with them and make it clear that I have no ill intent in this wall project? It would have had to have been tempting to them, I think. And some kind of a lure to be meeting with the leaders of the surrounding areas. Some validation of Nehemiah and the work he was doing, right? It feels good to be meeting with the important How do you think the people who got invited to that wedding yesterday felt? Moaning who didn't get invited. Why didn't I get an invitation? I'm important. I'm famous. I didn't get an invitation. So people were whining and moaning. So there had to be, I think, I think, and again, I'm reading in the text here. This is me. I think Nehemiah must have thought, well, maybe, maybe. He had to think about it. I don't think it was just a hard no from the beginning. It became a hard no. Bunch of leaders. Who meets with leaders? Leaders meet with leaders, right? So, do you think that maybe, just possibly, it would have felt good? Nehemiah is clearly a leader of these people, but this could be a public proof of that standing. He could get validation, right? I just think that it must have had some pull for Nehemiah for a lot of reasons. It feels good to get invited and possibly recognized for the work that you're doing, doesn't it? But... Nehemiah sees through their ploy and he says, Oh no, to the invitation to Oh no. Sorry. Can't help it. Can't help it. Yeah. He says he knows that they intended to do him harm. 
He knew that they were trying to lure him away from the work and were probably going to get him away and either hurt or kill him. So he refuses their invitation. And why? This next verse, y'all. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? I love that. This, in my opinion, is the second greatest picture in the whole book. You might have remembered that I said the picture of the workers carrying their work and their weapons was my favorite picture. But this is surely a close second. Notice his response to their crafty invitation. He doesn't reason with them. He doesn't try to expose their dastardly plans, but just simply says through his messengers, mind you, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Now this serves a lot of purposes and it does so very effectively. First, it clearly shows Nehemiah's priority. What was his priority? This wall. The wall was the great work that he was doing. Fame, renown, recognition, and all that comes with great accomplishments are good, but the accolades don't matter and won't even come if you don't get your work. Nehemiah wasn't seeking his foe's approval or their praise. Quite the opposite. He was trying to do what they didn't want done. The second thing that this statement accomplishes is to put his opponents in their proper place. They did not compare in view of how they stack up to the wall. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Do you see the pointed aspect of that? Why should I leave the work and come down to you? Wall good, you not so much. The third thing that this statement does is to show not only the priority of the wall, but the greatness of what they are doing in building this wall. I'm doing a great work. A great work. This wall, this effort is a great work. This is showing clear perspective and priority. And this wall, which we have said is a direct reflection of the glory of God, is the great work of the current time. And as such, he cannot come down from this work. He cannot come down from this wall. This is to take up his time. This work is to take his attention. This work is the pointed point of his affection. Not some regardless of their social standing. Now there's so much here, but we need to move on for time's sake. We'll revisit its great statement in application time. So how do you think the bad guys react to this? You figure they say, okay, Nehemiah, fine, that's good. You work hard. No. They persevere in their annoyance. Verses 4 through 7. And they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Sanballat, for the fifth time, sent his servants to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it. I love that. The nations say it, and Geshem says it. That you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king, and you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Yeah, yeah, come on. You, be, you better listen to us. We're going to get you out of trouble. So they keep sending for him. It says four times and then five. They can't take no for an answer. They're like, well, maybe his no means... And for the first four times, Nehemiah stays on task, stays on message, saying the same thing each time. And then on the fifth appeal, 
Sanballat sends an open letter. Now, don't miss this detail. Official letters in the Persian Empire were sealed so that only the person who wrote it and only the person who it was addressed to could read it. The common folk, the not-so-important people, couldn't read a sealed letter. Only the important people who the letter was sent from and to. But this is an open letter. This is a Facebook post. He wrote something on Nehemiah's... He wrote it on his one. Thank you very much. I'm here all week. Um, it's an open letter. Whoever was handled read it, and you know how people talk, right? So here comes Sanballat's servant with an open letter in his hand, meant for Nehemiah, but the openness of it pretty much ensured it would be out and about in people's discussions and gossip. Let me tell you what I read in this open letter. And you can be sure Nehemiah knew why it was sent this way. And I'm sure he was disgusted and not pleased to get this common communication. He's like, you're going to send me an open letter. Really? And what did it say? It basically accused Nehemiah and his building team of sedition, planning to rebel against the king and his kingdom, holding themselves up behind this new wall and exalting Nehemiah to the place of king in Jerusalem. They say he even appointed people to be prophets who are prophesying that Nehemiah would be that king. And then they say, hey, we're telling the king on you. Or at least he's bound to hear about it somehow. So come and talk to us about all of this. We can help you. We're just trying to help. So now what? Verse 8 and 9. Then I sent to him, saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Nehemiah ain't playing their games. He didn't banty words with them. He just said, no, it's not true. You're making it all up. Period. He didn't refute them with counter-arguments. He just said, that's not true. He knew that they were just trying to get him afraid, so he'd stop working, leaving the wall undone. Because you don't want to cross the king, right? But Nehemiah knew the king. Nehemiah knew the king's authority and he knew these things better than anyone in Jerusalem or the surrounding areas. And he knew that he had been commissioned by the king himself to do what he was doing and he knew that he wasn't doing anything subversive to the king. So he didn't get into a back and forth with his enemies. He knew the truth and he stuck to that and he continued to work. There was no desire in his heart to be king in Jerusalem. And then he went above all the earthly authorities and shot up one of these arrow prayers again, asking God to strengthen his hands, meaning help me stay strong and finish this work. They're almost done. Have you ever got almost done and left something? It's tired, done, I'm bored with this. Anybody get near the end of a book and you're like, I don't even want to finish this thing. Not that that's a great work, but uh, think about the next book now. Listen, Nehemiah has a new stage coming up. The wall's about done. He could forget about the wall now and move on to what's next. But he says, strengthen my hands. Is my battery dead? It's cutting. It's cutting. Okay. So he prays to God. And he says, help me stay strong and finish this work. Going to God's authority. Ultimately, it wasn't up to Sanballat 
Ultimately, it wasn't up to Artaxerxes or even Nehemiah to ensure that this work gets done. It was up to God making a way and providing strength to finish it. So he asks God to give him the strength that he needed. And there's some wisdom there, folks. Who has the ultimate authority? Who do we appeal to to get the work done that we need to get done? So now what? Well, it looks like that internal connection that we saw last week. Remember we said that Sanballat and his boys had some people on the inside? Looks like that's still in place. Let's look at verses 10 through 13. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let us close the door of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They're coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? Is that not awesome, by the way? And what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him. But he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way in sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. So what's going on here? This guy, Shimeiah was regarded as a prophet. And what's he do? He counsels Nehemiah to come with him into the safety of the temple because they were coming to kill Nehemiah that night. Well, even if it was true, which turns out it wasn't, Nehemiah was not allowed in the inner area of the temple. Only the priests, consecrated and born into the priesthood, were allowed in that area of the temple. Nehemiah, as distinguished a leader as he was, would still not be allowed past the altar and offering area of the temple. It appears that Shemaiah had some kind of access to the temple, which would infer that he was of priestly descent. But Nehemiah did not have that access. He was not a priest. So safe or not, Nehemiah would not violate the God-ordained order and go where he was not supposed to go. In verse 11 he says, on top of this fact, should such a man as I run away? Just absolutely love that. Had a boy, Nehemiah. He had just prayed in verse 9 that God would strengthen his hands, and we see that prayer answered pretty clearly here. That's courage and honor in action. Should such a man as I run away like a scared dog with my tail between my legs? He's like, no, that's not going to happen. Whether Shemaiah was a prophet or priest or whatever, ultimately he was a hireling of Scipio and Toby. He was on their payroll to help foil the work on the wall. They couldn't get Nehemiah to come to them, so they find someone on the inside who can get to him. And Nehemiah shows some discernment here to decipher that God had not sent this so-called prophet. Nehemiah knew the word of God, so he knew that God would not contradict his command for non-priests not coming into the temple. So what Shemaiah was saying couldn't have been true. A true prophet of God would not call Nehemiah to sin. And if Nehemiah did sin, it would discredit Nehemiah in the eyes of the people and give him a bad name. And if he was discredited by something he actually did, his enemies would have occasion to taunt him. It's almost like, almost, like the world and the devil are looking for us to mess up so they can point it out to us and everybody else, huh? Well, Nehemiah wouldn't have any of it, and neither should we. So, how does Nehemiah react to this? Verse 14. Remember Tobiah and Sanballat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah 
and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So what does he do? He prays. And when he prays, he prays against his enemies for this latest effort to discredit and discourage him. Remember Tobiah. Remember Sam Ballot. Remember Noadiah, who was kind of, you know, who's that? It's a prophetess. Obviously, she's wanted to do something too, try to do something to make him afraid. He says, remember these people who might be trying to make me afraid. He doesn't call for fire from heaven, but he just asks God to remember them. He's entrusting them to God's ultimate final judgment for their evil deeds, which is what we can do too. Whether they get paid back in this life or not was not as important as knowing that final judgment belonged to God. And Nehemiah could trust that in the long run. And now this, 15 and 16. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month Elul in 52 days. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Now we can't fully comprehend what just happened here. A job that should have taken professional wall builders a really long time especially to use and to clear the rubble that was there, took a bunch of amateurs, has-beens and never-will-bees, 52 days. A month and a half of focused labor amidst threats, discouragement, famine, financial crises, and threats both external and internal, and voila, we have a mile and a half long wall around the new city of Jerusalem. What had been a normal for years was now undone. These walls being down and broken down and just this is how things are. That's been undone. And the people of God could securely and safely dwell in the city of God to the glory of God. Now can you imagine the sense of accomplishment and joy when that final stone was laid, that final door or gate was set? It doesn't say it, but I just have to think that there were shouts of joy, songs of praise. And while the Jews were praising, the enemies of God and His people were afraid, and it says they fell greatly in their own esteem. They were pretty bummed that this thing got done. But not only that, they could clearly see that the power and force behind the work was not the people of Jerusalem, but God Himself. They perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Even those who didn't worship God could see God in this. When God works, He is visible. And when God works, He is at the forefront. And now these last three verses in the chapter. Moreover, in those days, the nobles of Judah sent many letters to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him, let that sink in for a second, because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Erah, and his son Jehoanan had taken the daughter of Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, as his wife. Also they spoke of his good deeds in my presence and reported my words to him. And Tobiah sent letters to make me afraid. Now what is going on here? We brought this up last week in passing. But look what's going on. We see a clear connection between the enemies of God and the people of God. It's alright for the boat to be on the water, but when the water's in the boat, you're in trouble. Even now, with the wall completed... The battle rages on. There's no point when the enemy says, you know what, we'll just leave them alone, they win. No, one victory, listen to me, one victory leads to the next battle. 
Andrew Bonner said, Let us be as watchful after the victory as before the battle. To which I say, Amen. And here, nobles, the high-ranking officials of the Jews, are pen pals with Tobiah. They're exchanging letters of dedication to one another. Oh, you're great. Oh, I love you too. Talking about how much they like each other. It appears that Tobiah was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, and his son, Tobiah's son, was married to a Jewish guy's daughter named Meshulam. The guy's name is Meshulam. Tobiah's son is married to Meshulam's daughter, which gives Tobiah contact and shared life with two different Jewish families, high-ranking noble families. This places people in his debt. And, have, and it has them making oaths to him and him making oaths to them for connection and blessing. And they're singing the praises of Tobiah to Nehemiah. Telling Nehemiah how great a guy Tobiah was. And they're telling Tobiah everything that Nehemiah says, which kind of gives away strategy and such. He exposes Nehemiah and his plans to the enemy. And even now, after the completion of the wall, Tobiah is still sending letters to try to scare Nehemiah behind his newly finished project. Now, here's the thing, y'all. The book don't stop here. So, the enemy proceeds. Okay, they got the wall built. What's next? That's what the enemy's saying. So what should the people of God be saying? Okay, the wall's built. What's next? The enemy's not done yet. We'll see more of that later in the book. But for now, let's see how we can apply this passage. And there's a lot. Okay? Six application points today. Sorry. Not sorry. You're like, what? Six? Yes, six. And they all talk about something that you should know. K N O W. Six things you should know. Know when and how to say no. You know. Know the word. Know that the enemy never stops. Know how not to be afraid. Know your great work. And know that God is the star of His work. Okay? That's our six points. And I'm, you might want to write them down. Just a thought. Because you're not going to remember them. We remember less than half of what we hear. So, might be something to jot down or type in with your thumbs. Number one, know when and how to say no. And, ugh, I think we're pretty bad at this as Christians. I think we feel like we have to be nice and say yes to every offer, every ministry, every giving opportunity that crosses our paths. We feel like if we're not doing everything, we're not doing enough. And yes, we should be sacrificial with our resources, our time, our money and such, but you can't do everything. We have to make sure we know the magic word, and it's N-O. It feels bad, doesn't it? I just said, I just told you to say no, and you're like, ooh, I don't know. You can't do everything. You aim at everything, you hit nothing. But that's not really the point. That's in there, and I threw it in there because it's important. But that's not really the point from what we saw in Nehemiah today. Who did he say no to? What did he say no to? 
He said no to a meeting with Sanballat and Geshem in Ono. Now why did he say no to them? Because he knew that they were trying to sabotage him and his work. He could have said, well, I, just, I guess I should go. But he said, no. Any prestige or platform they may have offered him was not worth saying yes to their offer. He also knew that they were opposed to the work of God, so he had no business dallying with them in any capacity. Let me read a hard passage of Scripture. You're like, oh, this isn't too hard. Trust me. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Now we use this passage a lot when we talk about not marrying unbelievers, and that's right. But I don't think that's the context here. The context is calling the people of God to be separate and distinct from unbelievers to be different than their enemies. So do we cooperate with the world and its tactics and how we do church? Do we adopt Procter and Gamble's vision statement? No. I almost said something bad there, y'all. Heck no! Amen. When someone offers us a winning business model to grow our church which has proven successful in the secular and in the sacred worlds, do we just jump in and say yes? No. We say no. Might it work? It might. But our hope is in what the Bible has to say about church. If the Mormons ask us to work with them to further and build the kingdom, what do we say? We say no. <laughs> And we have to know when to say no and who to say no to. Now that's true corporately and it's true individually. You have got to say no to some of the things that are in your life right now. That are of the world. And you are supposed to be separate and distinct. You are supposed to be, from Wednesday night, holy. Not like the world, not blending in because it feels good and because it's fun, but because we are different, we are to say no to what they offer us. Oh, check this out. This is the newest, latest, greatest, best thing in the world. No! Oh, come on. You're not compromising that much. No. We have got to know how to say no. And I don't think we do. Again, we're so scared of being legalistic. How do we know when to say no? Point two, we've got to know the Word. We base our operations on what the Word says. Capital W Word. Nehemiah could say no to the so-called prophet Shemaiah because he knew that the plan that the false prophet was proposing was against what the Word of God said. 
So how do we say no? We know the word. The Bible is to be our plumb line to determine what is of God and what is not. If what somebody offers us, if what somebody proposes, doesn't match up to what we see in the Scriptures, we refute it. We deny it and we say no to it. This is particularly true and this is of utmost importance. This is particularly true when it comes to the gospel. So much of what we do, who we agree with, who we work with and such, will be based on what they say the biblical gospel is. And this is clearly shown in how Paul refers to the clear line between the true gospel and all other false gospels. Now listen to this. This is monstrous. Galatians 1, 6-9. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. You think this is important? Look at that. Paul tells the Galatians there's no gospel except the true gospel, and that gospel is revealed in the Word of God. And then he says, if anyone proclaims anything but the one true gospel, well, we'll just shake hands and part ways. That's not what he says. He says, if they're proclaiming anything except the one true gospel... They are to be accursed. Literally, let them be damned. He even says that if it's Him or an angel from heaven, if they are proclaiming something other than the one true gospel, even if it's Him or an angel, let those be accursed. Do you get that? We say no. We yell no to anyone who is proclaiming a different gospel. And we know what the gospel is by what the Word of God says. And no other way. And listen to me. There are thousands upon thousands of ways to pervert the gospel. One little word. One little emphasis on the wrong syllable. And all of a sudden, you've got not the true gospel anymore. You have to be vigilant to know the Word. Hopefully we help you do that. Hopefully we equip you to know the true gospel. And let me tell you what, if the gospel that somebody preaches smacks of anything that I've got to do to be saved, it's not the true gospel. Salvation belongs to our God and to the Lamb. Well, you better, you got to have your check boxes checked. You got to do this and you got to do that. You got to walk the aisle. You got to fill out the card. You got to get baptized. And then you got to become a member and then you've got to tithe or you're not. Really? It's not what my Bible says. It is up to you to know the Word so that you can say no to all these false gospels that are circulating and recirculating and recirculating like stale air in our day and time. 
Know the Word so that you can say no to that which is not of the Word. Know how and when to say no. Know the Word. Number three, know that the enemy never stops and he is never going to. I guess it should be stated too that we should know that we have an enemy who hates us and that that enemy is seeking to destroy us. John 10.10, Jesus said, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Listen to me, Christian. You have an enemy and he hates your guts and he would love to steal, kill, and destroy in your life. I think we live like we don't have an enemy sometimes. 1 Peter 5.8 says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Our enemy is like a lion who prowls around looking to devour us. That word prowls is a present active verb, meaning that it's always going on. This lion don't lay down for a nap. In the book of Job, we see the devil is giving an account of what he's been doing to God. In, verse, in chapter 1, verse 7, the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. Now know that the devil is not God's equal. And as such, he's not omnipresent, which means he's not everywhere at once. But he didn't have to be. He has a third of the angels that followed him in his rebellion against God. I don't know how many that is, but I know it's a bunch. And those are demons, and they're real, and they're active today. They didn't retire when Jesus got crucified. And they do their master's bidding in seeking to discredit us like they tried to discredit Nehemiah. You see, we're made in the image of God and if we stumble as Christians, if we fall, we don't glorify God well and that's exactly what the enemy wants. Satan and his minions. But it's not just the devil and his demons that work against us. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says this, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. While neither the devil nor his demons are everywhere all the time, his designs or his schemes, his plans, are in place all around us. In our flesh, in the world systems all around us. And he never stops. And he never will. And he is your enemy. He is my enemy. And his days are numbered. He knows his time is brief. But the time that he has, he will be prowling about like a roaring lion. His schemes will be everywhere and his demons will be active. Now I'm not telling you to look for a demon behind every bush. But I'm saying be mindful you have an enemy Christian. Amen. So that leads us to point four. Know how not to be afraid. With all this talk of devil and demons and schemes and all this bad stuff, it's easy to get worried and walk on eggshells all the time. But we are not to be given to fear. What Nehemiah say? Should such a man as I run away? Now keep in mind, this was in reference to Shemaiah saying that Nehemiah's enemies were coming to kill him that night. They weren't going to give him a noogie. They weren't going to come to take his lunch money. They're going to come and kill you tonight. Should such a man as I run away from even that? 
So we have to know how not to be afraid. Nehemiah wasn't running away. Why not? Proverbs 28.1 says, The wicked flee when no one pursues, but the righteous are bold as a lion. Now, you want to talk about a lion. Our enemy prowls about like a lion, but we are bold as a lion if we are the righteous. Why are we bold as a lion? 2 Timothy 1.7 For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You see, God has given us not a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Listen to me, Christian. You don't have to be afraid of the devil or anything else because God's Spirit... Did you hear what I just said? God's Spirit, God's power make us bold as a lion. Can God lose? Stephen, can God lose? No. And God's Spirit is in me. So I am bold as a lion. Jesus said, don't be afraid of the one who can only kill the body, but fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. He said, all they can do is put you in the grave. That's the worst thing they can do to you. And then we see Jesus face to face. That ain't so bad. We get to pass from temporary life to eternal life. Everlasting life. But we mentioned a few weeks ago, we do get afraid sometimes, don't we? I do. So what do we do? Remember, Psalm 56.3, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. I don't know where the rest of the verse is. It's supposed to be in there. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. Oh, it's because it's supposed to be verse 4 as well. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? Know, Christian, that God's very Spirit is in you. And know that when fear invades, we go back to the Word to remind you of the God who is in you and who is your strength. Now, two more. Bring it all to conclusion. Point five. Know your great work. You need to know your great work. And I'm not talking generically here. This is the key to the whole passage today. Nehemiah wasn't even tempted to capitulate to his enemy's proposals because he knew he had something better, something greater to attend to. His face was set like flint. His heart was steadfast in ensuring that this great work got done. From the time that he heard that Jerusalem's walls were in shambles when he was back in Susa, Nehemiah knew that he had to do something to get these walls rebuilt. Those walls in that place with and for those people for the sake of the glory of God. Now do you see how specific that is? Let me read that again. Those walls in that place with and for those people for the sake of the glory of God. And that desire, that calling, if you will, was what drove Nehemiah from day one, from being scared to death to even approach the king, to getting this last gate set and going, yes. He knew the great work that he had to do. Now let me ask you something. Do you know the great work that you have to do because if God has recreated you in the image of Christ, and He has, 
If He is conforming you to the image of Christ progressively through sanctification, salvation is God's work, sanctification is God's work. And if He's doing those things, do you know what you're supposed to be doing? Now listen, yes, you should be a good husband, a good wife, a good son, a good daughter, a good student, a good worker. Yes, 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 yes. But what is it right now in your life that you're supposed to be doing? What is the great work of your life right now? Not the great four or five works. What is the one thing you're supposed to be doing now above and beyond everything else? What are you supposed to leave everything else for? And that doesn't mean everything else goes away. It's just saying, I've got to focus on this right now. This is my great calling right now. I don't know that we're specific enough. We tell you to do good. We tell you to try harder. We tell you to be godly. Yes, 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 and yes. But what is it that God would have you to do now? What would God have you do in your home? What would God have you do at your work? What would God have you do in your neighborhood? What would God have you do here at church? What is that one great thing that you can identify that you are supposed to be doing? Specifically, from the intense sadness when he first heard it until the elation of the final work, there was a burning desire in Nehemiah's heart to build that wall. I am not telling you to follow your heart. I'm telling you to get a hold of the vision that God has put in front of you. Because what we see in Nehemiah is vision. It's passion. And this is what it looks like to know your great work. So do you? Do you have that thing that helps you know what to say no to? That thing that helps you run to the Word for guidance? and keeps you free from fear of the enemy, what's that thing that the enemy's whispering in your ear? You better not. You better not. That can sometimes be a good indicator of what you should be doing. Do you know the priority of your life right now? Do you have a vision for your life? Do you have a purpose that drives everything that you do? If you do, then as I've talked, it has just naturally found its way into your heart and mind. Even while I'm talking, you're like, yeah, it's that. It's the thing that you tune your life to. And like we saw in Nehemiah today, there will come times when that vision and purpose come to completion. And then what? Then there's a new vision, a new calling, a new great work to come into focus. This was true in Jesus' life. I'm going to show you three passages. Four, four actually. Tell me what the great purpose of Jesus was at this time. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. What's his great purpose here? To preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. He said, this is what I was sent to do. That's Luke 4. Luke 9. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. What was his great purpose then? Preaching was over, y'all. It's time to go die. John 20, 17, Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. He's done preaching. He's done died. Now He's resurrected. He's going to heaven. And He's ascending to the Father. He had clear, pointed purpose in each stage of His life. And that's just three examples. And what I'm trying to communicate to you is, different times of your life, you're going to have a different point, a different focus. Maybe while your kids are growing up, that's your great focus. 
What happens when they leave the house? Now you've got no focus. Now you've got no purpose. And you have a party. <laughs> and send them off. And they're off. <laughs> what I'm trying to say to you is, it's going to look different at different times of your life, but you need to have that one clear purpose in your life right now. And then when that's done, move on to the next one. We're going to see that with Nehemiah. The wall's built, but there's more book. He's got more to do. And we see it ultimately in the life of Jesus, because there's greater works that Jesus does. But we saw that his goal in the, in the first verse was to preach the good news of the kingdom. Then his goal was to go to Jerusalem and die. And then his goal was to ascend to the Father. Once the first was accomplished, it led to the next. And now, now, Jesus has a great work to do as well. Hebrews 7.25 Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus Christ is interceding for us today. And He always lives to do that. That's good news. Jesus knows what He's supposed to be doing at this stage of His life. And He does it. And we can rest assured that Jesus will do His part to complete His great work. And so we draw our cues from Him and His life. Pray, ask, seek, knock, and don't let go until you know that thing that is priority in your life right now. And keep praying, keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking when it's finished to find the next great work so that you can say, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, So you can say, should such a man as I run away from fear or difficulty? So you can know what your priorities are and what you're supposed to order those priorities around. So you can know how God wants to glorify Himself best through you, which is our last point. Number six, know that God is the star of His work. We saw it in verse 16 of Nehemiah 6. And when all our enemies heard of it, all the nations around us were afraid and fell greatly in their own esteem, for they perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Yes, Nehemiah worked hard. Yes, the people had given sacrificially. And yes, man had a part to play in this monumental task. And to get it done in 52 days was quite the accomplishment. Look at us. Yay us. But the praise wasn't given to the people. The enemies perceived that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Listen to me. When you find that one thing that you're supposed to be about, when God is working in you and through you, He gets the glory. He gets the praise. He is the center of attention. And it is as it should be. All of the universe exists to proclaim the excellencies of God. You exist to glorify God. And so your work, your vision, your focus should have the ultimate goal of showing off God to the world. He said, I will not share my glory with another. When Jesus was on the earth, He lived and breathed the glory of God. And when all things are done... God will be all in all. Let me read this and we'll be done. Then comes the end. 
when He, Jesus, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. When all things are subjected to Him, God the Father, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him that God may be all in all. Now that's a lot of words and it can be kind of confusing. Here's the point. Jesus Himself subjects Himself to the Father. And one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this great work that you're seeking out, this thing that you should be doing and focusing on right now, it should bring glory to God. It should be God working in and through you. And Paul says that. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So whatever it is you're looking for, if you don't know what it is, maybe you do know what it is, but you need to tweak it a little because it's supposed to be about the glory of God. Because God is going to be all in all. And as such, He should be even now. All of this, all of us, is about God. And our great work should reflect that. And when we live that way, listen y'all, the world notices. It may not like it, but they will fear and fall greatly in their own esteem compared to the glory of our great God. Let's pray. God, I thank You that You are doing a great work. And You have invited us to work alongside with You. You have told us that You would work in us and through us according to Your good pleasure. And we say yes to that, God. God, teach us what it means to be able to say no when we need to say no. God, teach us what it means to keep referring back to the Word, to know the Word. God, help us to know that the enemy never stops. Help us to know how not to be afraid. God, help us to know our great work. And help us, God, to know that You are the star of this work. Nehemiah saw it. Nehemiah knew it. Nehemiah did it. And the same Spirit that was upon Him is within us. Help us, God, for Your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll just stand and receive a benediction. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. And all God's people said, Amen. Stay and eat with us if you can.